Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. so good to have you here. Excited that you're here, whether you're with us for the fifth time or the 50th time. We're very excited that you are here with us. We are jumping in and starting this our second week in everybody's favorite topic, finances. Uh, yeah, oh, groaning. Someone's like, how long is this service? How long is, how long is this series? I want to know so I can just not attend. Uh, but we are excited to walk through the topic of money. And we've been navigating different topics in the writings of Luke. And if you're not familiar with the New Testament, Luke was one of the big writers of the New Testament that God inspired him to write down his, uh, God's word to his church, to his People And Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and a book called the Book of Acts. And so significant portion of the New Testament is written by the author Luke. And we've been navigating the whole year, all of 2023, through the different topics that Luke covers. And this week we have, or this series we have, the topic of, of money. And this is a significant topic for Luke and for Jesus. Jesus seems to be talking about money and possessions a lot. So we have to bring up this topic. It's not everybody's favorite, if I'm honest. It's not my favorite to necessarily teach on either, but it is important. So we need to take some time to focus on that topic. So as we jump into that, let me ask you a question. When it comes to what is harmful or helpful to our faith, how does money relate to that? Let me be a little more specific. What is a greater danger to our faith? Prosperity or poverty? What would be like a bigger obstacle, right? The abundance of possessions or the absence of possessions? Now you kind of already said it, you already heard it, that really it's fascinating how scripture describes the answer to this question because oftentimes the scriptures will say that riches are actually a greater danger than being in need. That prosperity is a greater danger to our spiritual growth and our relationship with God than poverty. Now, poverty can be dangerous. It can put us in a place where we question God and his provision for us absolutely. But when it comes to what is mo most dangerous, if you were to kind of equate the two on a scale, clearly it's taught in the New Testament, especially the teachings of Jesus, that riches tip uh, this way. They tip the scales in the sense of being more dangerous to our faith. 
Now, I think that's very interesting because oftentimes in our vocabulary, we can communicate something totally different. Here's what I mean. When, when we're talking about somebody being blessed, oftentimes what we're talking about is their financial prosperity. Or if we receive, say, a windfall uh, of money, uh, an inheritance or a bonus or something, we often will use the language of, man, what a blessing. Now, that's really interesting. When we think about financial prosperity, when we think about windfalls of money, we think about inheritances or bonuses, oftentimes we use the language of blessing, but we see Jesus specifically talk of these things as being dangerous. So which one are they? Like, are they dangerous or are they a blessing? Well, the answer is yes, right? They're a dangerous blessing. In fact, that's the big idea for today. So if you write down one thing, I want you to write this down. Wealth is a dangerous blessing. It's true. It is a blessing. Yes, we see money moves ministry. We see that in the New Testament church. We see that in the Old Testament when God was building his people, the people of Israel, that oftentimes money, finances, riches, wealth were used as a blessing to provide for people's needs. It was used to provide for sustenance for the family. It's used to move ministry across the globe. So yes, money and wealth can be a blessing. It can also be a significant danger. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When we desire an abundance of possessions, it can really push us away from people, make us indifferent to the plight of people, that that they're injured or they're hurt or they're oppressed or they're in need. And because we want to secure ourselves, we are indifferent to their suffering. So there's this kind of complicated picture to when it comes to wealth. It is dangerous, yet is a blessing. You can almost think of it like, like a really sharp knife. In the hands of a skilled chef, that knife could be used to prepare parts of a great meal for people to enjoy. Or in the hands of a maniac, it can be used to take a life. Money, wealth, riches, they're a tool. They're, they're morally neutral until they land in our hands. And that's when they become dangerous. They're morally neutral until they land in our heart. And that's where it becomes dangerous. And Jesus is going to pick up on this. And I really want us to have a a sober awareness of just how dangerous the blessing of wealth can be. Yes, it can unleash a lot of good. But man, it can be incredibly destructive to your faith. Incredibly destructive to your relationship with God. Incredibly destructive to your relationship with people. So we need a sober awareness. We need to be safe with our money, just like we would be safe with all the sharp knives that are in our house. We keep them out of the reach of children, and we're mindful of when we're using them. We need to have that same kind of awareness when it comes to our wealth. Let me show you this in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a key to unlocking the meaning of Jesus' stories that he often uses, uses to teach lessons to his followers. Oftentimes, Jesus will tell a story. He's a master teacher, and he's a wonderful preacher, and he uses illustrations a lot, or stories. Often, we refer to them as parables. Parables are stories with a point. And what we can't do with Jesus' parables, what we shouldn't do with Jesus' parables, is kind of treat them like a shotgun blast. 
right? If you think of a shotgun blast, it kind of lets all these pellets out and it makes this kind of wide spray on a target unless you're shooting like a slug, right? Now, I don't own a gun, so if this analogy isn't working and I'm wrong, please tell me I'm wrong. Okay, but normally, right, in my understanding, a shotgun blast spreads wide. Think of Jesus' parables more like a rifle. It's a specific shot pointed at a target. It has intent and focus to it. We don't want to look at Jesus' stories and Jesus' illustrations, Jesus' parables, and say, oh, it has an infinite amount of points. No, and then we're going to get lost. And then we're going to make Jesus say, th- say things that he's not really intending to say. We need to see the point, the context that helps us know what is Jesus trying to communicate. And here's the secret and the clue to discovering the point of Jesus' stories. Look for the surprise. Look for the surprise. Jesus, again, master teacher. What Jesus loves to do is tell stories where people are kind of like nodding their head. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that's wise. And then Jesus will say, nope. And then he'll turn it on its head and it's like, it gives him like whiplash. That Jesus will say, this is what you're expecting. This is what you're expecting. Guess what? This is not what you're expecting. Here's the turn. You need to see things totally different. Jesus was so good at disorienting his people and then reorienting them to the ways of the kingdom of God. We see this all the time. And in this story, that's what we need to see. We need to look for the twist, look for the surprise, that moment where Jesus does the unexpected. Because that's where we're going to see that wealth is a dangerous blessing. Yes, it's a blessing, but it's also incredibly dangerous to our faith. So let me show you this again. Look for the surprise. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Even in the setup of the story, there's kind of a surprise moment here. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 says this. Someone in the crowd, this is Jesus' teaching, interrupts Jesus' teaching. And this is what he says. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, for us, this sounds really weird. Right? If, if, if I was teaching and we're you know, in the midst of a service and somebody stands up and be like, you know what, my grandfather just passed away and we need to allocate his resources that he left behind. Paul, would you be the arbitrator of our estate? That would be weird to happen in the middle of church. right? All that vocabulary would be strange here. That would not be seen as appropriate. And in all my ministry years, I have never had anybody come up to me and said, hey, I have a legal matter when it comes to the allotment of our inheritance. Can you, Pastor Paul, intercede on our behalf? That's never happened once. And if you're thinking, maybe you would be good at that, Paul. Don't. I wouldn't. Because I'm going to tell you, you know what? The best idea, just give it to the church. Right? You don't want me in that room. I just be like, I know where the money should go. Over here. <laughs> right? So, but this is actually not uncommon. For Jesus to get this kind of request. So they say teacher, which means rabbi. That would be the name of a Jewish teacher. And rabbis were often approached by people to handle this kind of matter. And rabbis had very specific instructions in the Mosaic law. That's the law in the Old Testament. Particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, there was clear instructions about how to divide an inheritance. So Jesus being this rabbi or teacher kind of put him in that position to help out in this situation. Now, Jesus is kind of a rogue rabbi. He's not really recognized by the Jewish leadership as a rabbi that you should invite into this. So it's kind of a strange situation Jesus finds himself in, but this is somewhat common. Now, we need to be careful because here's what we often do. Well, let me admit, here's what I often do when I read the scriptures. 
I assume the worst of people. I know you're like, you sound like a great pastor. Yeah, I'm kind of cynical when it, when it comes to the people in, in Scripture. And I don't think we should do that. We should reserve our judgment here. Because the information we're given, yeah, we can assume the worst, but we don't know. So this guy giving this request, maybe it's honest. Maybe he's experienced some form of injustice. He's not getting his fair share. Well, he needs an advocate. And why not the Son of God? Wouldn't that be appropriate? So I don't think we should be cynical. Now, here's what I do think. I do think we need to be slightly skeptical. Why? Look at what he says to him. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Does that look like a question to you? No. You know how it's not a question? There's no question mark. Yeah, it ends with the period. First service, they're like, oh. <laughs> I told you you're my favorite and the smartest of the services. Yes. Grammar lesson here. If it was a question, it'd have a question mark at the end. This guy's not asking Jesus, hey, I'm not certain how to do this. I invite your wisdom into my situation. Please speak into this, Jesus. No. He goes, hey, tell that guy to go do this. Mm. It seems like he's assuming that Jesus agrees with him. And it seems like he's assuming, right, that he's just going to use Jesus' power and authority to get what he wants. So, again, maybe it's a big injustice, right? An inheritance would be a significant financial windfall for this person to experience. So maybe there's a little bit of emotion here. Again, we don't know enough to be cynical. We know enough to be skeptical. But what Jesus does is he, su he surprises everybody. Definitely going to surprise this guy. And I think he's going to surprise the crowd. Because this idea of inheritance is a good thing. It's a blessing from God. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, it says, like, blesses the man who gives an inheritance to his children and his children's children. This is a blessing. This is a blessing. But Jesus can see the danger that this man can't see. And I think the crowd can't see. And I think even that we can't see as readers. We don't know what's going on, but Jesus knows what's going on. And Jesus is going to take a turn with this request that's coming from a person who's experienced injustice, and Jesus is going to point out something that nobody else can see. He's going to judge something that nobody can judge, and that's the intentions of this person's heart. Look at how Jesus responds to him. Luke chapter 12, we were in verse 13, so let's read verses 14 and 15 says this in verse 14. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? I think what Jesus is saying here, this is my guess, is that he's saying like, look, this is not important to bring before me. There are other rabbis. And again, Jesus is kind of a rogue rabbi. So maybe he feels like this is not appropriate. I don't think that Jesus is indifferent to this man's situation. I don't think that. I think actually this is Jesus saying, this is really not what's important. Now, that's, think, about, think about that. If you are going to receive an inheritance from a wealthy family member, that could be significant. And Jesus is saying, that's not the problem. The real danger lies somewhere else. So I think what Jesus is doing here is says, you know what? I'm going to judge in a matter that is more important. You could take this to a legal resource. Go to H&R Block. They'll figure it out or whatever, right? Let me tell you what I see as the son of man. I see your heart, and here's what I see in your heart. Look what Jesus says in verse 15. 
And he said to them, so Jesus is now broadening the, teaching, broadening the teaching moment. He's not just talking to this individual. Now he's saying, I see a danger in the whole crowd. Here's what I see. We think this is a blessing, an inheritance, but it's a danger. And here's the danger. Verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? Yes, this is a blessing. But be careful, because you know what's more important? Your brother is more important than your bank account. And this is a perfect example of wealth ruining a relationship. Of this blessing that was set up by this relative that would be applauded in the Old Testament. This blessing is becoming a danger because, look, it's already fracturing your relationship with your brother. You're coming to me in the midst of a crowd saying, this guy did this wrong. Here's a perfect example. You want to get in the ring with this guy, and you don't need to. Jesus sees the heart. He says, this is where the real danger lies. Not in the allotment of an inheritance, but rather the attitude of your heart. Be careful. This is a dangerous a dangerous blessing. Now, Jesus is going to tell a story. Again, I said the key to the story is what? Find the surprise. What Jesus said right here is a surprise. Jesus won't be the judge of what would be normally considered as appropriate for a Jewish religious teacher to do. He surprises the crowd, probably surprises this man, disappoints this man, and says, no, the more important thing is your heart, and that's what's off. So then Jesus tells a story, and in that story, there's a twist, there's a turn, there's a surprise moment, and that's where the point is. The point being, wealth is a dangerous blessing. Look at the story that Jesus tells to illustrate this to this man, really to this crowd, and honestly, to all of us. Jesus says in verse 16, he told them a parable, a story with a point, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. Tear down my barns, build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains, all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Let's stop here. Again, let's not be cynical. If you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you know the end of the story, so you're automatically cynical. But if we're just reading the story right now, if we're just following along as Jesus' first century hearers were, what would we think at this point? This guy's blessed. He's blessed. If we go back to the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God set up as he was bringing his people into the promised land. So the story of Israel is this. They left Egyptian slavery Then they went to the promised land. They went through the wilderness and went to the promised land. And as their wilderness journey is ending, there's this leader that they've had for a while. His name is Moses. He's the one who delivered them from the slavery of Egypt. He's preparing them for the land of blessing when they'll become a nation. And in that sermon, God sets up a very practical sermon. He says, if you obey me, here are the blessings you will get. If you disobey me, here are the curses that you'll be under. And it's this huge, significant sermon. And it starts in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God says to them, if you obey me, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a lot of crops, and I'm going to fill your barns. That's an interesting word, isn't it? It's exactly what Jesus is talking about here happening with this man. 
So if you're a Jewish reader or listener, hearing this for the first time, you hear this story, what do you think? This dude's blessed. This is Deuteronomy 28 right here taking place. Clearly this man is blessed because he receives this windfall of abundance. Jesus has already said this man was rich, so he's already a pretty good farmer. He knows what to do. He's a, a, a decent landowner. He's probably got an MBA, right, and a green thumb and all the other stuff that goes with farming. He knows what he's doing. He's already rich, and then he gets an unexpected windfall. Notice he's not even prepare, prepared for it. Now, I don't know how farming works. I, I do not have a green thumb, okay, at, at all. But normally, I think, a farmer could anticipate the yield of his crop, right? He can look and say, ah, it's going to be good, it's going to be bad. This guy, who's already skilled at what he does, because he's rich, he's wealthy, he's already made good money, he didn't even anticipate the windfall of this harvest. It's blowing his mind. It's bigger than he anticipated. In fact, so big, he's like looking at his barns like, what am I going to do? How can I steward this blessing? i got to tear these down. i got to save and I'm going to retire early. Are those bad things? No. The scripture is talking about enjoying the fruits of our labor, enjoying the kind of harvest of our work. That's appropriate. Saving. The Bible talks about saving. Saving is a good thing. It's not like this guy went off and just went to Vegas, right? Went to a Raiders game, watched them. Oh, I didn't say it this time. I didn't say it this time, right? Well, I, didn't, I, I want to note that in the sermon notes. I did not say what would happen, right? But go to Vegas, just blow it all. I mean, Jesus did this and will do this later in the gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 15, when he tells the story of the prodigal son, he talks about the guy taking his inheritance and squandering it. That's not this guy. We can't be that cynical with this guy. This guy was blessed by God clearly because this bountiful windfall of a harvest. And so he saved and retired early. Not so bad. And in the Jewish mind, they would think, clearly this man is blessed by God. Now, a little footnote here, because this is important for us to remember, okay? So let's just take a sidetrack moment, a pause moment, because it's important to understand how the favor of God is illustrated in the Old Testament and the New Testament, because they're different. And let me tell you, you're going to be disappointed, okay, right up front. I'm just going to tell you right up front. Because the favor of God was seen in the Old Testament as prosperity. God set it up that way. God was building a nation, and here's what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and then clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when he does the blessing and the curses, but in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says, here's what's going to happen. The nations are going to look at you, Israel, and you're going to be like in a fishbowl or like a fish tank. They're going to see clearly into your environment, and they're going to see the vibrant colors. They're going to see the clear water. They're going to view your prosperity and say that you have a wonderful God. That's how the favor of God will be shown to the nations is you will prosper. Now hear me, that's the Old Testament model. The New Testament model changes. You're like, really? Can we go back to that one? Kind of like that one. It's different because God is doing something different. And as we read the scriptures, we have to be faithful to how the story changes, how the chapters change. Because the mission of God in the Old Testament was more like a boomerang. God would send people out to bring back into the nation like a boomerang. The mission of God in the New Testament is different. God is not building a nation. God doesn't have nations. God has people in all nations. That's very important to understand. That God is not building up a country or building up a people to just be his. He is building 
a kingdom of people throughout the nations. That's what he's doing. It's different. And the mission of God, instead of looking like a boomerang, looks more like an arrow. He shoots us out to the ends of the earth to bring the gospel to different nations. It's a totally different experience and understanding. And so the favor of God is different, just like the mission of God is different. In this idea, when the mission of God was building this nation, God wanted the nations to see their favor, their prosperity, and say, surely your God is blessed. In the New Testament, the paradigm changes, and Jesus shows us that in his very first big public sermon we have recorded. Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted. Huh? No, 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 no. Jesus over here says, blessed are the prosperous. God's favor is on us. Jesus starts his first sermon radically changes. Remember when I said the twists and the turn, the surprises, the disorientation, the reorientation? Jesus does that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when you are reviled and ridiculed for my name. What are you trying to set up, Jesus? What, what is the greatest apologetic, and what I mean is like defense, not apology like I'm sorry, but was the greatest apologetic and the greatest persuasive point to the favor of God being on the church is they are enduring in suffering. That they suffer well, not that they prosper well. That's the Old Testament paradigm. We suffer well, and that makes us persuasive. First Peter is a perfect book if you want to unpack this. So, again, this is important for us to understand that shift and that move. So, Jesus is speaking to an audience who's living in this other mentality. Prosperity means favor. So, when Jesus tells the story, what are they thinking? This dude's blessed by God. Like, clearly, this man is blessed. He's not squandering his living. God is rewarding his obedience. Everything is good. Windfall of cash. We should admire this guy. Now, you already know now, Jesus is kind of setting him up. You could see the crowd nodding their head. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And Jesus is like, gotcha. And then he makes this turn. And again, in this story, God is going to speak to this man. And God sees what nobody else sees. What we as readers can't see until this moment. And what they as hearers, I don't think, saw in this moment. Just like Jesus saw what nobody else could see. He saw the intentions of the man's heart who asked for this inheritance to be distributed correctly. He saw something that nobody else could see. So too in the story, he sees something. God sees something that nobody else could see. Because everybody else looking at the rich man would have said, blessed. And look what God says in Jesus' story. What does he say of this man? Blessed is not the word he uses. He uses a different word. Look in verse 18. Or sorry, verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Everything's fine. But that's where we know the turn happens, verse 20. Here's the shock. But God said to him, fool. Now this does not hit us like it should hit us. Right? When we think of fool, we think of maybe somebody with a low IQ. Right? Or maybe who some, somebody who doesn't understand the emotional wake of their actions or decisions. Right? They don't understand like relational economics. They, they make decisions that just hurt people. Right? It's like that person when you're driving into Costco 
right? And you're in there, you're just trying to find your stall, your place to be, your parking spot, and somebody's about to pull out, and you put your blinker on. And what does that mean? That means that's my spot, right? Everybody knows, you need to acknowledge this if I ever see you in a Costco parking lot, okay? (laughs) If I put my blinker on in my giant sequoia with all my kids, it's my spot, okay? It's like, it's like a dog peeing on a spot. That's, that's, exact, that's what the blinker means. It means, yeah, I know that was too far. Okay, but you know what I mean. The blinker is like, I'm claiming this is my spot. That's what you're doing, right? But then you know, and you've had this happen to you before. It's not just me. It's not just a confession of Pastor Paul. You put your blinker on, and the person backs out. But the way they back out isn't right. And you're like, Argh. right? They back out in a way that blocks you, and then now they're like a fullback to another running back, but you're not the running back. Some other dude's the running back. Oh, gosh, right? And he pulls out, and then the guy just, whoop, right? Single dude in a Miata. And you're like, bro, walk, you know? You know what? You carry my kids. How about that? Let's, no, you're like, Pastor Paul, calm down. I'm, just, I'm a sinner too, man, okay? Jeez, don't judge me. It's church, right? But that moment, right, of like, ugh, and you say, and you've been in this moment, right? You use the word. What do you say? You say, you fool, all right, now be real. Don't lie in church. You don't say fool. Don't be true to me. You don't say fool. Right? But we, that's what we kind of think of, right? This modern day, if we were to use a term like that, we would be like somebody who's either not smart or they're just not aware of the social damage they make with their choices. Like you're being foolish. You're not being considerate. That's not what it means in Jesus' context. When Jesus laid this word out, man, it gave them whiplash. Again, because they're seeing this man as what? He's blessed. Yeah, you might be skeptical of his character, right? Because in his speech, what does he say? What am I going to do with my stuff? I'm going to build more barns for my stuff and my goods. I mean, he seems pretty selfish. So we're slightly skeptical. But this is a shock to the story. This is that twist, that turn, that surprise moment. Because fool means this. In the Old Testament, fool wasn't about intellect. Fool was about the heart posture. It was a disrespect and disregard for God. To say, God, here's your plan. Here's your design. Here's your rules that allow for human flourishing. I'm going to push those away and say that I know better. And I'm going to go my way. That is the way of the fool. Now think about that in that context. Now look back at what the man's speech was in Luke chapter 12, what the man said to himself. Look at verse 17. The land, the land of the rich man produced plenty. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. Hmm. Who's at the center of this man? Self. I didn't even know this dude's married. He's got kids or a wife or even has friends. Because the only person in his plans right now are who? Himself. My stuff, my stuff, my stuff, my stuff. And then I'll say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Saving's not bad. Retiring early, that's not bad. Handling your wealth like a fool is bad. Complete disregard for the things of God. You have this shocking moment. Boom. This turn moment. And look at how God speaks to this man. Again, go to verse 20. 
But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Here's what I think happened. This man believed that he was the owner of his soul and his stuff. And he was so wrong. Because look what God says. I require something of you. And what is it? Your soul. And your stuff? Who's going to get it? Right? What do you leave behind when you die? Everything. Everything. This man had a false idea of ownership. All of that stuff in those barns, not his anymore. His very life, not his anymore. All of that stuff was on loan. From who? From God. Because now God is calling him to an account. Hey, what'd you do with that life that I gave you? I'm curious. What'd you do with that bountiful harvest I gave you? I'm curious. When I did beyond what you expected, what'd you do with it? What'd you do with all that stuff that you put in those barns? Jesus sees something that nobody else saw when that man asked that question. God in this story, in Jesus' story, sees something that nobody else would see. Everybody would see him as blessed, but turns out this man was in danger. And he fell victim to his riches, and it ruined his faith. Now look at Jesus bring the point home. This is when Jesus makes sure that we don't miss the point of this parable, the point of this story, verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I love how the language that Jesus uses here. I love the directional language because it gives me a really good visual of what's going on. He's saying this rich fool laid up treasure for himself, his money was aimed at him. That was clearly seen. My stuff, my crops, my soul, I'll find comfort, I'll relax, I'll drink, I'll be merry. And Jesus says, no, we need to be rich toward who? Toward God. Means the blessing that that God gives us, we need to send back to him. Back to his mission, back to his design, to get it out toward us. To let the arrows be outward. That's when we'll truly enjoy the benefits of those blessings. But blessings can be detrimental to our faith if the direction of them is pointed inward. That's when we're in trouble. That's when we're in trouble. And that's the danger of financial blessings. The danger of wealth. The danger of riches. It can ruin, ruin our faith. Now here's what you have to do. Right? And I encourage you to do this. This is my challenge to you this week. You need to do business with God. Not business with your pastor. No, I'm not entering into that space. <laughs> I'm going to say like Jesus, am I the judge or the arbitrator in this matter? I can't see your heart. But God can. And I ask you, when you look at your bank account, right? when you look at your accounts, you look at your money, your possessions, your wealth, Where is your heart with that? Do you see that and think, ooh, I can't wait to turn that stuff inward. Look at what I have to enjoy for myself. Or do you look at that and you're like, you know what, man? How can I I use this toward God? Toward the mission of God? I encourage you this week. Again, 
not me. Because Jesus saw what nobody else could see. In the story, God saw what nobody else could see. Sadly, what that man couldn't see. God can see your heart. I can't see your heart. So ask him, Lord, search my heart in this. How do I handle my wealth? Is it a dangerous thing? You blessed me with it. Is it hurting me? Is it hurting us? Is it creating a wedge between me and you? Or am I using it as a tool to press ministry forward? Because notice how Jesus doesn't say it's bad. He says you need to be rich toward what? Toward God. Use your resources for the mission of God. Let me show you a really practical application I think that prevents us from greed. It's a tool that we can use, a practice we can use to present, prevent us from greed. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read verse 13. It's very interesting what the Apostle Paul does here. As he's speaking to the church about how they handle their finances. Here's a really practical point of how to be rich toward God. What does that mean? Right? It's a great phrase, but what does it mean? If blessing is dangerous, if wealth is dangerous, a dangerous blessing, then how should I use it? How should I steward it? How can I be rich towards God? The Apostle Paul would tell you this. In fact, we know that because he wrote it to the church, the church of Corinth. And here's what he tells him. And again, what he's going to use is a tie to the Old Testament. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Now a little bit of context here. What's going on? When God was with his people in the Old Testament, he had a visible symbol of his presence with them. It was the temple. Of course, God exists everywhere, but he manifests his presence with his people specifically in the temple. And he would show up in incredible ways sometimes. He would fill it so much that at times people couldn't even come in. There was so much of a cloud or, or smoke that would happen. God showed up in a radical way. And there are people who protected that picture of God's visible presence for the people, of God being with his people. And those people were called priests. These priests would educate the people on the things of God. They would teach them the laws of God. And they would be there to help them see a picture of sacrifice. That because of our sin, there needs to be a sacrifice. Somebody has to pay the penalty for that sin. And so in the Old Testament, what it was, it was usually the sacrifice of an animal. Sins were confessed upon the animal. That animal then died. And the idea was that kind of dirt or grime of sin would be on that animal. It would be sacrificed and they would be punished as a substitute for the person, for the confessor. And the priests would not only teach the people, but they would protect the clarity of this picture. We need God's forgiveness. And somebody has to die for the wages of sin. Somebody has to die for the sacrifice of sin. Now, we know in the New Testament, the ultimate sacrifice is not a goat or a lamb. It's the Son of God. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, yes, we don't have a temple but we have people who protect the picture of God's love for his people in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We call them pastors. Paul would call them leaders or ministers. And Paul is saying this, just like in the Old Testament, these priests, that's their job. So they would take part in the sacrifices and they would be financially supported. Money would move their ministry forward. Look what Paul says. 
He says, just like that, there were people protecting the picture of God's redemptive love for his people. Now in the New Testament era, there's still that. Look in verse 14. Thank you. In the same way. What does in the same way mean? In the same way. That's what it means. He's like, just like over there, now over here. The Lord. Who's the Lord to Paul? That's Jesus Christ. In the same way, the Lord commanded. Now, again, can I just be absolutely honest? I don't like talking about money. I don't. It's being clear. I don't like talking about money. I don't like talking about finances. It's uncomfortable and it's awkward. But for some reason, Jesus seems to always talk about it. (laughs) So we have to talk about it. And this is a hard passage to to teach because it seems very self-serving. Because I'm one of these guys. Right? Look what he said. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living. What does it say? By the gospel. Paul sees it is appropriate to support the lives of people who make it their job to proclaim the gospel message and to build up God's people. And that's true for me. Right? Sunrise Church is a, a huge blessing to me. It allows me to, to earn my livelihood on being a pastor. We have several other pastors who receive that blessing as well. That we don't have to have a full-time uh, job outside the church to support us. We can give our full focus to you guys. And that's a wonderful blessing. And the church is extremely generous to me and to my family. I want you to know that. And it's an awkward topic to talk, talk about. But hear me out here. Giving here is obedience. It's a command by Jesus, not a command by Pastor Paul. I don't have that right to command anything from your wallet. I don't. But Jesus Christ does. And he says what? Be rich toward me. And what's being rich towards God? Giving to the ministry of his church. I don't like how money and ministry seem to be all kind of tied together. I don't like that. But I can't ignore it. It's true. It's true. You can't be rich toward God. How? By funding gospel ministry, supporting missionaries, supporting pastors, supporting your local church. And so here's my question. You, and no, this is tough. This is hard. And you may not like me after the end of this, and that's okay. There are a lot of people who don't like me, and a lot of them are my children. <laughs> so that's fine. I'm used to it, okay? Uh, but I would do this, man. I would really look at how you support this local church, Okay? And I would say this, look at that and do some business with God. God, what does this say about my heart? Am I rich toward you? Or am I pointing my blessings at me? Okay? God's got to search that out. Between you and him, you let him do some work on your heart. Not Pastor Paul, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he can see what I can't see. And that's what's going on in your heart. And I think you want to honor him with your finances. Honor him with your wealth. And I would encourage you to support the the ministry of the church. I think it's a great blessing, and I think it's a way to combat greed. And greed is a dangerous thing. The love of money is a dangerous thing. In Luke chapter 8, when Jesus talks about the seed of faith landing in soil and then growing up, he says that one of those seeds of faith that grew was then choked out by thorns. And Jesus says, do you know what that thorn was? He says, the riches of this world. Wealth can kill faith. It's dangerous. Know that. It is not neutral. It's not defanged. That thing has got to bite. 
And we got to tame that thing. Because if you don't, your story may end like the rich fools did. And I don't want that. I want you to be rich toward God, running away from greed and covetousness and taking your resources and aiming them at the things of God. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. You are so benevolent to us. God, you are a giving God and we want to be a giving people. And I thank you for Sunrise. Just the history of this church has been a people of sacrificial giving of people that have aligned their resources with your agenda. And so, Father, I know that this week, it may be a hard week. As, as many in our church, and I, and I know myself as well, just thinking about how we use our resources, thinking about how we steward the great blessings that you've given us. And, Father, we don't want your blessings to ever become dangerous to us. We don't want the threat of prosperity to ruin our faith. We don't want that. What, what does it profit a whole man to gain the world and that lose his soul, you said? We don't want to do that. So, Father, help us. Help us to, to restrain greed and covetousness in our heart. Help us to see that giving is an act of worship to you. We're saying that you're the boss. You're the true owner. We're just the stewards. Father, I pray that you be with us, and I thank you. I thank you for the heart of generosity that is on display in this church so many times. So many times. Allow us to continue to be that kind of people. So in Christ's name I pray. Amen.